So we are going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14 this morning. This is our 12th week in, in this book. As we've been looking at this series on the rise of a king, we've seen 1 Samuel covers the rise and for most of these leaders fall of three main characters. You can see kind of our big picture outline, chapters 1 through 7. We saw Samuel the faithful prophet. We're in this middle section of chapters 8 through through 15, Saul the failed king, and then we'll wrap up in the new year um, looking at, at David. We've read about Saul's quick rise to power as the first king of Israel, and, and we're reading now about his equally quick fall from power, right? He begins as this humble, God-fearing leader, unites the nation, but quickly we've seen Saul unravel into selfish pride. He took matters into his own hands, and, and both last week, this week, and next week are all Part of one scene, chapters 13 to 14, is really one long string of events as the Israelites are battling the Philistines. And so we'll do the first half of chapter 14 this week, finish up next week, and then we're going to have a long six-week break uh, to celebrate Christmas and the new year. And we actually aren't going to get to chapter 15 until the second week of January, which is really kind of the the final nail in Saul's coffin in, in his fall. And then we begin to read about the rise of David. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, as we dive into the word this morning, one, one more note, uh, before we, we pray and, and read together. Um, we're reading in the book of first Samuel about wars going on in the nation of Israel. Uh, the, the people of God warring with Gentile nations around them. And, and that happens in much of the old Testament. And it's hard to read these historical accounts of ancient Israel and not think about the wars going on today in modern Israel. Right. And, and, and our hearts break. Hopefully our hearts break for the men, women, and children that, that are suffering um, in the conflict there, the conflict in, U, in Ukraine, countless other uh, areas of violence and military unrest around the world. And, and our desire is to be people of prayer that are praying for the Israelis, for the Palestinians, for Jews, for Muslims, for Christians that are all suffering in that area. Now for many, when we hear about these current events and our hearts are stirred to prayer, it raises spiritual questions, theological questions. Wait a minute, is this war a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? Is this a sign of Christ's imminent return? Is God on the side of Israel? Do they have a divine right to the land? All of these questions uh, rise up. And so I wrote a blog last week as I've been wrestling and sorting through all of this. It'll be posted late Monday night, emailed out Tuesday morning. And believe me, I'm not trying to solve the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict, okay, in one blog post. But what I'm trying to do is provide some biblical and theological clarity about how we should be thinking and how we should be praying. And I wrote this article from the perspective of, of what we call covenant theology, the convictions that are expressed in, in Living Hope's expanded doctrinal statement. And the quick summary is that while the conflict in Israel certainly is significant, I would encourage you not to make a one-to-one correlation between Israel of of, of the old covenant that we read about in, in, in our scriptures and the modern state of Israel. Right, So since the, the culmination, since the fulfillment of the old covenant is found in Christ, in his life, death, resurrection, and eventual return... That means we're no longer expecting God's kingdom to be established through the political state of Israel. And so I know I've just opened up a big can of worms, so put them back in for a moment. Remember to pray, read the blog if you want to follow up more. Let's be people of of intercession and prayer, grounded in God's word, grounded in hope. So with that, and again, as we dive into Israel's war with Philistine in this context, let's pick up in, in chapter 14, verse 1. We're picking up the story where we left off last week. 
Remember that Israel's in this standoff with the Philistines. Saul's only been king for a couple of years. He's still in the process of, of gathering his, his, uh, his army. Um, they are ill-equipped. They're inexperienced. They're outnumbered. Jonathan, his, his son, Saul's son, is a general in charge of about a thousand men. We read at the beginning of chapter 13 that he has attacked a garrison, an outpost of Philistines. And, and this small victory we read last week kind of kicked the bee's nest, right? And now the Philistines are angry. They're coming out, troops too, too many to count. And they're at this, this place called Michmash for this big battle that's looming. And the armies are facing each other on the battlefield, right? And they don't have, they don't have uh, uh, missiles that can go miles and miles away. So they're all within a couple miles of each other. They can literally see the camp, see the troops, and they're in this standoff. Many of the Israelites, seeing how outnumbered they are, have, have run and hide. They're literally in caves and holes in the ground. Some of them, we'll actually read this morning, some of the, the Israelites have actually defected and joined the Philistines. Not, not a good, a good situation that God's people are in. Saul, the king, we read last week, got impatient, didn't trust God, didn't wait. And so the prophet Samuel has prophesied to Saul that, that the Lord has rejected him, that the, the kingdom of Israel will not continue through his line. Now, we don't know how, we, how widespread Samuel's prophetic declaration is, but I imagine that, that Israelite soldiers probably tend to gossip. And I imagine that word has spread, hey, did you hear? Samuel said Saul's not going to continue to be king. His line is not going to go on, right? I would imagine this is probably impacting already low morale. It's likely that, that confidence in Saul's leadership is, is eroding. And in the midst of all of this, Saul's son Jonathan, again, we're going to read this morning, is going to act. Jonathan is the central character of chapter 14. In fact, he'll continue to be a central character for the rest of the book. And we're going to read this morning about Jonathan's great courage and the great victory that ensues. A victory that Jonathan brings about, but ultimately it is God's victory. So I'm going to uh, read and, and, and unpack this passage in three different sections. So, so join me and we'll read the first seven verses. 1 Samuel 14, the word of God. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone out. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with your heart and soul. Amen. So I'm going to leave you hanging there for a minute if you didn't read ahead this week. Uh, Jonathan lays out this vision, this plan. 
He's identified an outpost of, of Philistines. Not that not the main army, but, but a garrison that is in a strategic place. They are blocking a main pass to the Philistine army. And he basically says to his armor bearer, Let, let's go out, let's draw first blood, right? I'm sick of, of waiting around um, and, and I, and I want to go. So like on the fight versus flight like paradigm, right? Jonathan is all fight. He's all fight. We saw this last week. And so this armor bearer would have been a man that would have been literally his right-hand man that would have trained with him. Uh, He would have been the man that would have gone into battle to carry his sword, to carry his extra ammo, spare gear, to fight alongside of him. They would have trained together, washed these other's backs, right? And and so he says to him, let's let's go together. Now we read in verses 2 and 3 that Saul and his troops are in another uh, area a couple miles away. The, The priest... Ahijah is with them, and, and they are apparently hiding in a, in a cave bunker, kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Jonathan does not send a messenger to the king, to his father, to tell him he's going. In fact, he doesn't even tell his own soldiers. This is a secret mission. Maybe he's struggling to trust his father's military instincts. We don't know why he doesn't tell him, but there's a lot going on. So his own troops don't know. This is a covert mission. So so. Set, let me set the scene for you. You can see this map up here. Um, I pull all my maps out of the ESV study Bible. Um, and you can see Jonathan's force kind of in, in the south at, at Geba. Saul's force would have been a little northeast of that at the, the place called Migron. And then Michmash is where the main Philistine force was located, right? So you can kind of see what's going on there. And there's this large gorge, this, this, this valley between Jonathan's force and between the Philistines. And right on the other side, as you can see, there's this outpost, right? Where a garrison had been set up to do what? There's a main pass that goes along the gorge into the Philistine army. And so this, this outpost has been set up to protect the main pass into the main Philistine army. Jonathan strategically says, well, if we take that pass, that will give us open entry into the main Philistine camp, right? And verse four says that between Jonathan and the Philistine outpost is a rocky crag. Okay, that's just fun to say, by the way. There's probably other ways to translate it, but rocky crag is awesome. It means it's a cliff. It's a steep, rocky cliff separating, and you can see kind of on the, the, the map there, the little, the little gorge, right? If you go to the next slide with the pictures, you can, you, some of you know, some of you have been to Israel, in the northern part of Israel, in the hill country, it, it's rocky, it, it's, it's difficult terrain, right? There's gorges, there's, there's steep cliffs, there's rocks, there's caves. Jonathan is going to sneak out with one other guy, climb down one cliff, climb up the other cliff, and try to surprise this outpost. Now that in and of itself, just sneaking out, just climbing down, literally rock climbing, back up, the other, that in and of itself is daring and courageous and, and, and dangerous enough, right? But then he's going to meet this garrison of, of the enemies. We read in verse 6, Again, he says to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So he refers to the enemy army as uncircumcised. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his people. The foreskin of all male descendants of Abraham was cut away. Why? To signify that the people of God were set apart. 
They were cut off from the world and clean before God. So Jonathan calling the, the enemies of God uncircumcised, he's making a theological statement. These Gentiles are enemies of God. They worship false idols. They're given to, to, to violence and wickedness and, and sexual immorality, child sacrifice, all sorts of deplorable things. And they have no place in God's promised land. And so he says, it may be that God will give them into our hands. Other, other versions translate the Hebrew there, perhaps. Perhaps God will give them into our hands. Listen, Jonathan has no divine assurance that this is going to work. The prophet has not spoken. The word of God is not written, you know, do this battle. He's doing what he believes to be right. He's acting based upon what he knows about the character of God, the promises of God, and the word of God. And Jonathan's saying, perhaps God will give us victory. I don't think that's a statement of faith. I mean, I don't think it's a statement of doubt. I think it very much is a statement of faith. He believes in God. He's like, let's go for it. Perhaps, perhaps we can win, right? We know that sitting here, the situation's not getting any better. We heard that last week, right? And so Jonathan is like, look, we can either wait here while things get worse and worse, or we can just go for it, and perhaps the Lord will work. Perhaps it's, it's His time. Perhaps He'll use our effort and our energy. We at least got to try, right? And here's the thing. It is, it is the uncertainty of, of the outcome. The outcome that, of what Jonathan is about to do is uncertain. And it's the uncertainty of the outcome that makes it such a great act of faith and courage. Do, do you see that? If victory were, were assured, you know, anybody would just go do it. But it's the fact that he, he doesn't know. He has to say, perhaps the Lord will work and he'll honor our efforts. And perhaps this will be the time when God has the victory. He's full of faith, full of courage, not faith in himself, not faith in his armor bearer or his bravery or his fighting skills. His faith is in Yahweh. He says, look, God can work. God can work through an entire army or God can work through two faithful men, by many or by few. We think about Judges chapter 7 when God raised up the military leader Gideon to go in and and attack a force. And, and God purposefully whittled down Gideon's entire army to 300 men and said, Gideon, go in and attack with 300 guys and then everybody will know that the God of heaven won the victory by few. Who knows? God can work by many, by few. And so this armor bearer we read in chapter 7, he's a faithful guy, right? As I've said, they would have trained together. His right-hand man, he says, he says, do whatever's on your heart, Jonathan. I am with you heart and soul. I'm going in. I'm one step behind you. And Jonathan's faith, his courage spurs this man to come along with him. What a beautiful picture there of going into battle two by two, heart and soul bound together, partners for the Lord. Think about Ruth's statement to Naomi, right? Remember Ruth said, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Where you lodge, I'm going to lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so their hearts are wed together. And we're going to come back to this armor bearer later. But we see them both step out in this great act of of faith and courage. So we all face threats, right? We all have enemies. We all have battles. What's your reaction? Are you you more on the, the fight side or the flight side? We were talking about this in Life Group this week. And who knew? There's now four different ways you can react to a threat, right? You can fight. You can flee. Apparently, people have realized it's not just deer. You can freeze up in the midst of a, of a dangerous threat, right? Or there's this other, the, the only F word they could come up with is fawn. 
Apparently fawning is when you, you try to appease or accommodate or diffuse whatever threat is in front of you. Right? Now with the exception of freezing up, there's probably a place for all three of those reactions. It's not always time to fight. It's not always time to act. But there is a place for godly men and women to be people of faith and courage. Even when the outcome is uncertain. Right? In the midst of that, a call to step out in faith and courage. What are the threats that you're facing in your life? I want to propose to you this morning that in the, the spiritual battle of the Christian life, the war that we face, it's a war on at least four fronts. Okay, the first front is your own heart. The battle of your own heart as the enemy, even for people who trust Christ, continues to bring temptation, accusation in your own heart. You're not good enough. Discouragement, it's never getting any better. Doubt, maybe it's not true. Maybe the Lord doesn't love you. Fear, Fear of the enemy, fear of your own battles. Again, this battle, this war front in your own heart, the anxiety, the stress that plagues so many people. Self-condemnation, I'm not good enough, I'm not worth enough. Anger, reacting in, 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 in fleshly anger. Discontentment. Many of you that I know struggle with, with just the battle in your own heart of apathy. Just I'm just, I'm just coasting. Just It's in neutral. I really don't care. I just, I just want to go to bed. Right? Addiction, several men in our congregation currently, right now, the battle in their heart is for the, the cravings of addiction. The second front, I think, in the war that we face is the, is the battle in our families. The enemy would love to destroy, to tear apart our families, our marriages, our children. Sometimes that happens through infighting amongst spouses or siblings. Talk to a man this week who is just being overcome with the struggle of, about bitterness with another sibling in his life. And we sat and we talked, just, just the weight of it, of, of, of bitterness. Maybe, maybe for you, the, the battle in your family is just for distance. Like, we're all just going to do our own thing. We're going to be isolated. We'll just take our devices and sit in four corners of the house. And that is, that is represent, representative of the hearts and the relationships, maybe, of the people in your home. Young people, maybe you're here today, you're like, family, I want to get as far away from family as I possibly can. It's difficult, it's hard, it's troubling. Some of us, the battle in our families is children that are struggling with unbelief. The enemy that's stirring doubt in their hearts. Maybe there's unforgiveness going on. Maybe it's your immediate family, your extended family. So the second front is the, the front of, of the family. The third is, is the, the battle front of the church. Now, I, I know not all of you think of the church as, as a community for you, it may just be a service, but, but I would invite you to, to press in to this community of faith, that these people that are gathered together as sons, as daughters, as soldiers, right? And we as a church are, are a force for the Lord, but we're also a front of assault. And there's disunity that, that can happen in the church. Pride can impact, right? As one leader or one person thinks that they're better than others. Again, that, that foe of apathy, how about, how about just the, the struggle in the people of God for shallowness, right? If we can all just smile and shake hands and just keep, keep it long enough to get out to the parking lot, nobody will know, right? How about that? How about the, the battle of nobody gets me, right? No, nobody really gets me. Nobody really knows how hard my struggle is with my mental health or with my cravings. Nobody really knows what it's like to be going through the kind of marriage that I'm going through. I, I, I could tell somebody, but if I did, nobody would understand me anyway, so, so why do it at all? What about jealousy? Look at what they have. 
man, God, why didn't you give me what they gave me? And so there's all of these challenges in the church. I remember speaking with a pastor a couple months ago who said, guys, he said, you need to pray for me. My, one of my crucial elders just came and said, you're a good pastor, but I no longer trust your leadership. I'm giving you three months, and if something doesn't change, there's going to be problems. <laughs> can you imagine that? Some of you are like, yeah, I can imagine it. I've been there. So your own heart, your own families, your own church, and then the world, the battle the battlefront of the world in this spiritual war that we face. There's deception going on in the world right, right now. Right, The enemy is the father of lies and, and many are being swept away. Just the distractions of the world. People that are like, I don't really know what I believe about God. I don't really care because what the world offers is just so daggone fun. Right? Like I'm just distracted from anything of any eternal value. There's injustice going on right now in the world. People being harmed and mistreated and abused. There's godless worldviews, man. If you were at our men's retreat a few weeks ago, we know that there are these secular and there are these false idols, these worldviews that are growing and stirring and many of them taking ground in the world around us. And so we look at these fronts, we look at these threats, and we can sit back passively or we can be people who, who step out in faith and courage and say, God, I'm going I'm to act according to your word. I'm going to seek unity with the, the people around me. I'm going to seek wise counsel. I'm going to submit my ways to the, to the word of God. And then I'm going to make a choice. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to act. And God, I don't actually know if I'm going to win this battle. I don't actually know if it's going to be the right thing. But we go out in courage. And who knows, Lord? Who knows? Maybe, maybe this battle... Whatever, whatever that is, if it's disunity, if it's mental health, if it's addiction, if it's infighting, if it's bitterness, if it's jealousy, if it's secular worldviews, if it's unbelief, God, maybe you'll have victory over this person, over this community, over this particular season of time. And so we go out and courage. What did the angel say to Mary? Nothing will be impossible with God, right? And, and so with that hope, like we, we act and we, and we step out. As, as Ephesians says, God is able to do far more than anything you could ask, anything that you could even imagine. And so if God can do more than you can imagine, well then let's at least do what we can imagine, right? Led by the Holy Spirit of God. And, and that's, that's what this, this section of Scripture sets up for us, right? This, this great act of courage, right? Man, we, we love Jonathan. Like we get riled up, right? Ten years ago, 2013, we did a men's retreat. And we studied this section of Scripture for a whole weekend. We called it Taking the Hill, right? I mean, that, that'll get some men together for a retreat, right? Like, let's go out. Let's do battle. Let's, let's take the hill. You know, we were up at Camp Hebron. Some of you remember that. And we, we studied this passage together. We talked about what it, what it was for men of faith to bound, bind together, to work together, to take the hill together, to fight together. And if you've been to Camp Hebron, you know there's this like two-mile hike that goes straight up to the Appalachian Trail. And you're scrambling when you get to the top. And so I remember Saturday afternoon after studying all of this, like we go out on this hike, right? And we're all like hyped up because it's a retreat. You're on that high. And it's like, yeah, let's take the hill and let's get up to the top of the trail. And uh, I think a couple guys, if I remember correctly, had to like carry Charlie Hoops up the last the last like 20 feet where you're literally scrambling on your hands and knees okay and it's like come on guys this is this is just a little hike like right and there's this like retreat hype and this like battle cry but here's the reality guys like all those men 10 years ago had to go back home and, and live their lives right and like 
have marriages and families and jobs and raise kids and, and connect and like live it out. This is not just about like a, a hype at a retreat or even here this morning, right? And some of you are like, I, I just want to go fight. Like, God, can I please fight someone? I know murder is bad, right? I know like Jonathan, I can't literally go kill people, but God, like, would you give me just one godless person that I could just punch out? Like, I'll go back to being kind and gentle and loving, but if I could just, like, I don't want to kill them. Maybe break their jaw. Like, I'll even go visit them in the hospital afterwards and share Jesus, right? But some of you are, like, have such that that passion to go fight. But that's not the battle, right? That's not what the Scriptures call us to in our time as, as followers of Jesus Christ. Think about the Apostle Paul, who was as much on the front lines as, as anybody ever has been. He's living in a culture, a depraved culture. He's planted a church in Corinth, depraved culture in Corinth, sexual immorality running rampant, opposing worldviews in the city of Corinth, sexual depravity in the city that has infiltrated actually the church. And look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. People are undermining his authority, and he says this, For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now there's a lot going on there, but as, as I said, there's 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 false theology, there's sexual morality going on in Corinth. Paul, his own authority is being undermined and he's saying there's a, there's a place for obedience in the church. But he reminds us that whatever threat on one of those four fronts that you're facing, it's not a battle that we wage in the flesh. The weapons that Christ has given us are not in the flesh, but they're weapons against arguments, against opinions, against thoughts that need to be taken captive to obey Christ. And hear this, brothers and sisters, Christ our King, Christ the great warrior came and defeated the enemy on the cross. He, he rescued you out of sin and death. He's filled you with His Holy Spirit. And through His death, you're forgiven. Through His resurrection, you're empowered with the Holy Spirit to now walk as men and women of faith into the battle, a spiritual battle, with the weapons of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, prayer, and the Gospel, suiting up every morning in the armor of God and His love, and His grace, and His word of truth. Christ has, has conquered our enemies and now calls us to wage war in our own hearts, in our own homes, in the church of God, and in, and in the world. Taking every thought captive to obey Christ, our King. So, you guys want to get back to the story and see how this, how this plays out? Look at verse 8. Let's, let's read about Jonathan's strategy and, and the attack that him and his armor bearer have. Verse 8 says, Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of holes where they have hidden themselves. 
And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And at the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furlough's length in an acre of land. So here's the strategy. He says, look, we'll climb, climb down one side of the cliff, climb up the other side of the cliff, and before we get to the top, we're going we're gonna to make ourselves known. We're going to do it such that the, 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 the scouts of this garrison can see us. And he says, if they tell us to come over, then we'll know they don't see us as a threat. And then we're going to climb up to the top and we're going to take it. If, if, they, te- if they say, stay where you are, don't come any closer, then we'll, we'll stay. But if they invite us up, you think to yourself, why would the Philistines invite them to come up? Well, you have to remember what's going on, right? The, the Israelites are outmatched. They know people are running and hiding. People are hiding in caves. People are deserting. Hebrews have deserted over and joined the Philistines, right? And so to them, it's like, oh, look, some rabbits coming out of their hole. Yeah, come on up. We'll show you a thing. We'll teach you a lesson, right? We're not scared of you. And Jonathan says, okay, if they don't see us as a threat, we know we have the element of surprise. We know that we can take them and God is with us. He's planning out a strategy. He's not being rash. He's not being reckless. He has a plan. And so, they begin their descent. You can see again what it, what it would, have, would have looked like. And this is, this is how I picture it in my head, right? Okay, so, so Jonathan and his armor bearer, right? They're, they're here. There's a big valley. The Philistines are over there. So they, they climb down this steep one side, right? They begin to come up the other side. They stop before they get to the top, right? And they're, they're visibly letting themselves be known, okay? And they hear the Philistines say, Hey, look! Look at some Hebrews. Yeah, guys, come on up, right? So Jonathan turns to his armor bearer. He says, the Lord has given them into our hands. This is going to be a victory for Israel, right? And the way the battle plays out is they, they climb up on their hands and feet. They come up to the top of the ridge, right? And it's about a half an acre battlefield on the top of this ridge, 100 feet between him and the garrison. And one by one or two by two or whatever it is, the Philistines come out. Jonathan slays them. He keeps going. His armor bearer is literally in step with him. Jonathan hits him with the sword. They fall down. The armor bearer finishes him off, probably with a dagger or a club or whatever, right? And they're just going man by man. Twenty guys they slay across this hundred foot pass to the garrison. And it's this amazing attack. And, and, and the people who, if there were any left in the garrison, are like, what just happened? We were just overtaken by two guys right? And it's this amazing act of, of courage that is very well planned out, right? And Jonathan is a ruthless warrior, and his armor bearer and him are fighting side by side, watching each other's backs, trained together. What an amazing victory. As Jonathan steps out in faith is courage, as this armor bearer who says, you're the son of the king, and where you go, I'll go. I'm fighting wrong, right along with you. You take them down. I'll finish them off. I'll watch your back. You watch mine. And in a matter of minutes, the Philistines don't even know what has hit them. And this strategic location, remember, this this is an outpost that's meant to set up a major pass into the Philistine army. It's taken their, their 
completely exposed now, and as we'll go on to read, their strategy works as this pass is taken and the Philistine army is exposed. And it's literally a turning point in the entire war. So again, we come back to you and I. The call this morning in our spiritual battles is to be people of action, people who set a strategy, who don't sit back passively when sin, when death, when the devil is threatening our hearts, threatening our families, threatening our churches, threatening God's world. We're not sitting back passively. Now look, we're also not acting out of anger. We're not rash. We're not reckless. We're not ruthless. We need to be people that are wise, that are thoughtful, people that are prayerful, people that seek unity, that call others to stand by them, that, that have a biblical strategy, a biblical approach, a prayerful approach to what's threatening our lives. Because remember, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are, are not of the flesh. But when it's time to go into battle, even if it's just you and one other person for a precision attack, don't go in alone. Right? The call, and we see this again and again in, in Scripture, is to fight two by two. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. You've got to have somebody to watch your back. Some of you are here this morning and, and you're in a place of isolation. Not, some of you not by your own will. Some of you on purpose. I don't need anybody. I don't want anybody. Just leave me alone. I can take care of it. You need a godly friend, a mentor. You need a spiritual brother, a spiritual sister. If you're married, your spouse should be your, your first armor bearer, your first brother or sister in battle. Identify at least one other person that can pray with you, that can hold you accountable, somebody who can give you advice, that can pull you back when need be, that can push you on when need be, someone that likely has a different skill set than you, right? The armor bearer probably would not have done well as the, the first guy going into battle because that's not how he was trained. And so we stand together in this strategic spiritual battle around us. I think about several friends and and. and and elders and, and my own spouse, but I thought about Chris Rep recently. I was dealing with a relationship in my life that was creating a lot of tension and, 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 and it stirred up unrest in my heart and I was beginning to get suspicious and I knew that my own flesh was getting involved and I couldn't even see anymore. Wait, what's God and what's me and what do I want and what should I be doing? I said, Chris, we got to get breakfast. And so we sat at Mason Dixon and then I think they kicked us out and like it was like three hours, literally. By the end of it, Chris was like, can, can I please go to work now? Because I need to repair some leather and make a paycheck. But I'm like, Chris, give me advice. Rebuke me if you need to rebuke me. Keep me accountable, right? Like I, I, I'm in the midst of this relational tension and I need your help. So we go into battle as Jonathan and his armor bearer did with a, with a planned strategy as people of prayer. Now, as I, as I said earlier, men, we, we love this kind of stuff, right? Like, we want to go fight. We'd rather it be physical, honestly. But that's not what the Lord's called us to. But we are called to be men of faith. Each of you is called to be a man of courage, a man of strategy, a man of, of action. Think about this for a minute. If you go all the way back to the garden, all the way back to after God created Adam and Eve in His own image, and the enemy came and tempted, and, and, and the, the world was on the brink of breaking, of the fall, of sin, of evil, destroying the whole world. What was Adam's first sin? Adam's first sin was passivity. 
He just stood there doing nothing. The serpent came and tempted his wife and he did nothing. He just followed her into sin instead of leading them both toward God. And men have been struggling with passivity ever since that fall in the garden. Either that or we overcompensate and attempt to be people of dominance and oppression. But in your home and in the church, in God's world, we're called to be men of of faith, men of action, men that are proactive against threats that come against us. I think about Pastor Matt, one of the other men of God who stands alongside. Matt's a good man to have in a battle, right? Man is, Matt is on top of it. He's proactive. He's a man of faith. He, he's a shepherd that guards the sheep, right? Like I'm constantly wandering off. Let's find a new pasture. Let's get water over here. Let's build a new sheep pen. Let's plant a new church. Let's start a new leader. And Matt's like, yeah, but we got we to gotta tend the sheep. We got to guard the sheep. And there's threats coming against God people. And several years ago, he started seeing all that was going on with the gender confusion in our culture. He starts saying, we need to do something about it. We need to equip our people. And the elders start talking. And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It'll go away. Let's just, let's just, let's just take the next hill, right? And eventually we realize we, we need to do a seminar to address this gender ideology, right? That is a threat to our children, to God's people. Not, not the individuals themselves, the individuals themselves that are struggling with, with, with their own gender identity. That, that's a, a sad situation of, of, of crippling harm that need to come around them. But the ideology, right, we need to stand up against it. And so we began to plan and prepare for this seminar as we sometimes do. You know, we had 80 people show up. It was almost exactly a year ago for that gender, that uh, seminar called Identity Crisis. That's probably about three times more than we've ever had anybody show up for anything on a Sunday night. Why? Because the, the, the threat is real. The confusion is real. The worldview is real. And, and Matt led us into that, that step of faith. 1 Corinthians 16 says this, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. We're called to, to be watchful, to be alert, to look around, to, to, stand, to stand firm in the faith, right? Not to run and hide, not to cave in or, or, or be pushed over. That phrase there, act like men, I, I think of the most literal, most accurate way is, is just to be men. Don't act like it. Just be, just be men. Be men of God, brothers. As the Christian Standard Bible says there, be courageous, right? The idea of the Greek is, is, is to be, be, a, be a man, be, be a man of courage, to stand against the threats. Do everything that you do with an attentive heart, with a prayerful heart. Do everything in love. Not beating people over the head, but coming along in, in, in faith and courage and gentleness and attentiveness. Standing in the truth of God's Word. Godly men take responsibility, brothers. Whether you're a single man, whether you're a husband, whether, whether you're 18 trying to figure out the course of your life, or whether you're in your last season of life, godly men take responsibility. They anticipate a threat. They step up and they lead. They take initiative. They take action. They act with strength and courage and love. Act for your wife. Act for your children. Act for the Lord. Act for your brothers and your sisters, for Christ's church, for God's world. Women. This call in Scripture is for you as well to be a woman who's watchful, who stands firm in her faith, who is strong. Don't, don't be a man, but be a woman. Be, be a woman that God has called you to be. 
Adam's first sin may have been passivity and just standing by and allowing it to happen. Eve's first sin was believing the lie of the serpent. She believed that God was withholding something from her. Eve's first sin was not trusting what God had said, trusting what God had given them. And she believed what the serpent said, which was that they didn't have enough, that God hadn't given them enough, that there was more for her, that she wasn't enough, that if she ate of the fruit, she could be like God. And women have been struggling with that ever since, believing those lies. Sisters in Christ, stand strong as a daughter created in the very image of God. Trust God. Hold on to truth. Be faithful. If you're here this morning and you're married, be an intelligent helper, a wise supporter, a strong encourager that comes alongside of all of your husband's needs. As Proverbs 31 and Titus 2 say, be a woman of reverence, a woman of dignity, of of purity, of strength, a woman who works hard, who's generous, who's wise, who's kind. Be a woman, as we see in our sister Jan Knoll, leads our women's ministry team, served on staff many years ago. Jan's a woman, sisters, you want next to you in the midst of a battle. She's faithful, she's decisive, she's caring, she's clear. She's not going to beat around the butch with you. She'll tell you like it is. She'll call me from time to time as she leads the women's ministry, as she is active in, in organizing and relationships, and she'll say, Tim, I have a light week. Who should be on my list? And what she means is, who's hurting? Who's struggling? Who's it, who needs a phone call? Who, who could use a walk? Who could use a sister in Christ to come alongside of them, to be proactive, to lift them up, to encourage them? We're called to be people of faith, of courage, of strategy, of action. You guys want to read the end of this battle? Let's see this victory. God brings this panic and there's a great victory. Look at verse 15 and we're wrapping up soon, I promise. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count, and see who has gone out from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also returned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Haven. Look, here's how this whole thing works out. Here's, here's God's great plan. Jonathan slays these 20 soldiers. The path opens up. The Philistines fighting for, the Philistine fighting force is now in complete and utter chaos and confusion. There's this chain of events. There's this wild panic that's spreading through the Philistines. And, and it starts in the garrison, right? Whatever remaining survivors are there after the 20 were slain, they, they're, they're, they don't know what to do, right? They can no longer hold this position. 
That spreads out into the men in the field. That spreads to the main camp of the Philistines. And there's this panic that's happening. We read in verse 15 that the, the earth shook. Now, the, the, the word there in, in Hebrew, it's hard to tell if it's a literal earthquake or if it's just another way that God is supernaturally shaking the earth, right? But what's clear, if you look at the ESV footnote, is that this panic that's being created, it's a panic from God. Some translations say terror spread from God, right? God is, is, is now following up Jonathan's actions and everything is in panic. Saul, we read in verses 16 and 17, his scouts see the panic, see the Israelites' army fleeing, and he's like, well, what, what do we do? Who, what's happening? He takes a head count. Maybe there's been some secret attack I didn't know about. They realize, wait a minute, my son Jonathan and his armor bearer, they've gone out. So Saul like, has a decision to make, right? Do I, do I go follow them into battle? Do I, do I stay back? Now, what the scriptures are dis- describing here is not something complimentary for Saul. He's got the priest with him. But remember, the priest is a descendant of Eli. Remember, Eli was an ungodly man, right? And so they got the ark with them, which they probably shouldn't have because the last time this happened, the ark was stolen. So Saul's like, uh, I don't know what to do. There's chaos over there. Jonathan's fighting. Uh, priest, just like lay your hand on the ark and pray or something. See what God wants us to do. But as, as the priest is praying over the ark and Saul's indecisive, he sees that the tumult and the confusion is increasing. The Philistines are fleeing, and he realizes, i got to go get in the battle. And so he says to the priest, withdraw your hand, mount up, let's go. Right? As they're doing that, as they're following after the Philistines who are in retreat, chaos is ensuing. The Philistines end up fighting themselves because they're, they're like out of their mind at this point. They don't know who's a friend and who's a foe. They're battling each other. Hebrews who were hiding, they come out of hiding. They join this, this great retreat chasing the Philistines. There are some Philistines that ha- or some Hebrews that had defected. They now turn and join the Israelites, right? They chase them completely out of the region. And it's this massive victory. You remember the scene that we read last week, right? There's no chance the Israelites can have victory that day. And now all of a sudden, thousands of God's enemies are running for their life. And there's this tremendous victory. And they run them down run them out of the region, and God's people are brought to safety. All with Jonathan's courage, overrunning the outposts, unifying the entire nation, and Israel achieves the impossible. Victory against overwhelming odds. But, but we all know, we all know that it wasn't Jonathan's victory. It certainly wasn't Saul's victory. What does verse 23 say? So the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day. You say, well, what about Jonathan? Jonathan did what God called him to do. He acted in courage. But what does Proverbs 21, 31 say? The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And so what that means for you and I is get your horse ready. Stay alert. Prepare for battle. Look out for temptation, for deception, for accusation, for oppression. Be a person who takes initiative. Be a person that's preparing, that's praying. Make plans, strategize, recruit help. Step out in faith and courage. Get your horse ready, but the battle, man, that's in the Lord's hands. The battle belongs to the Lord, and if there's victory, it's the Lord's victory. And if there's defeat, it's because it's not the time yet. You continue to press on in faith. Because it's God who works. It's God who saves. It's God who has the victory. We read the Old Testament looking to Christ. And it hit me this week 
that Jesus is the son of the king, like Jonathan. He saw, our Savior saw that, that you and I, God's people, were surrounded. We were threatened. We were under the cloud of death, and so Jesus acted with courage. He came into the battle. He took on flesh. He became incarnate. He came down to earth. First John says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, and through his death, your sins are canceled. His righteous life is now imputed, given to you to stand before God as a man or a woman who is worthy, righteous before God. Through His resurrection, you are filled with new life. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Our enemy is in panic. Amen? Because of the victory that Jesus has has won. And now our call, it's almost as if our call is to be that armor bearer. Like, do you see that? Jesus gone before us, slaying the enemies in your life. Slaying death and sin and the devil. Victory has been won. And now every day as you wake up, Jesus goes before you and he says, he says, are you coming? And we respond like the armor bearer did in that story. I'm with you heart and soul, Lord. What's the next battle? What's the next battle in my heart you're going to slay? What's the next threat against my family you want me to stand up against? What is it that you're calling me to in the church? What are the, the spiritual battles in the world that you're calling me to, to preach the gospel, to share your love, to, to bring the kingdom of God on earth because I'm right with you every step of the way. And Jesus is out there slaying the enemy and they're falling on the ground and he says, no, just poke them. Just, just, just put them to death. I, I've done the hard work. You follow behind. And we follow Jesus into those battles. 1 Corinthians 15, here this is the worship team comes. Thanks be to God. Amen? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we prepare to close out with this wonderful song of worship, we're going to proclaim together that the battle belongs to the Lord. That Christ, our King, our General, our Savior, has won the battle, calls us to to walk in in obedience alongside of of Him. But as we sing, in fact, before we sing, I I, I want you, if you have not already, if the Holy Spirit has not already put on your heart, what what is that battle that you are going to face this week? What is that threat? And so I want to ask you to do something. Before you stand and raise your hands and be joyful, which I hope you'll get there, I I want you to make this specific. And so the team's just going to play for a minute. And I want you to identify, Lord, is it, is it the front of my own heart that you want to do battle for me, that you want me to join you? Is it, is it an area of discouragement or doubt or temptation? Is there anxiety or self-condemnation? Maybe it's, it's the front of your family. Maybe you know that in your family right now there's infighting or bitterness. Maybe there's isolation or distance or unforgiveness. Maybe there's something going on here in the church that the Lord is calling you to address your own pride or, or apathy that you see in others. To stand with a brother or sister that's given in to, to shallowness or that, that idea that nobody gets me. Maybe for you it's a, it's a bigger picture battle. To battle in prayer and in the word through what's going on in the world. To fight against the distraction and the de- deception, the injustice, the godlessness in our world. And so before we sing, before we stand and hold on to the very real victory that we have, would, would you just take a moment and bow your heads and, and just say, God, what, what is that battle in my heart, in my family, in the church, or in the world? And man, as the team plays, I, I would encourage you to, to make it real specific and real practical. 
Maybe for you that means standing and raising your hand. Maybe as the team plays that you you fight on your knees as we're going to sing. And so maybe this morning you just kneel down at your seat. Maybe you put your hands on your heart. But when, when you have identified what the Spirit is calling you to battle, make that real clear to the Lord and, and, and sing in victory, holding on to Christ, who died for you, who rose for you, who has defeated the enemy for you. So listen to the Lord as we prepare to sing.